welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 80 for Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. One of the most powerful and important elements of any video game is the art. It's the first thing we see, whether it's in a screenshot, a movie, a trailer, or whatever, and it's what often keeps our eyeballs glued to the screen while we're playing the game. And I'm here today to talk with somebody who is responsible for that aspect of many popular games, that being Angela O'Hara, senior artist with Big Viking Games. Hello, Angela. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. We've been following each other on Twitter for quite a while, several years, in fact. So it's a pleasure to finally be chatting with you on Polygamer. Thank you. I joined Twitter around 2014 or so and was just searching for people to, to follow. And I think you were one of the first people that I found. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Sounds like you were a bit of a latecomer to Twitter. I was, yeah. Um, I didn't really see the point of social media before, but like around like 2014 was like quite a year in games and just seeing like people with similar positions to me like out there and like trying to make a difference. I just didn't feel like I, I wanted to be silent any longer. So that's when I really kind of stepped up my game with the social media. Wow, that's great. Because I know 2014 was a year that also drove a lot of people in the gaming industry away from Twitter, if not from the gaming industry entirely. So it's encouraging to hear that it also motivated people to take a stance like yourself. Yeah, I just feel like there's like you're never 100% safe, but there is a sense of safety in numbers where if we can support each other, then maybe we can make things better in the future at some point. I absolutely agree. There is definitely strength in numbers. At the same time that you need to be making the decision that's best for yourself, it's great to know that there are others out there like you who have your back and that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. So for those who aren't familiar with Big Viking Games, can you tell us a little bit about the studio and what kind of games they make? Yeah, so Big Viking Games is a game development studio of over 100 people split between two studios. One is in downtown Toronto, Canada, and the other one is in London, Ontario, Canada. And I work out of the London, Ontario office. And uh, what Big Viking Games does is the bulk of our business is Facebook games. And we have two um, like casual social Facebook games all about expressing your creativity. And those titles are Your World and Fish World. And Fish World is the title that I work on. So Your World is more of a social hub uh, type of game where players have an avatar that they dress up and then interact in the world with their friends, um, decorating their character and building their apartment and dressing it up with all kinds of furniture and just participating in that kind of space. So players have a real, like they get a kick out of dressing up and uh, just going out into into the game and seeing their friends. And then Fish World is more of a pure decorating game. It's um, It was originally a, like a fish tank simulator type of game where you would collect fish mm -hmm. and decorate a tank with uh, like fish tank pieces. But we've moved way beyond that. The game is nine years old and it's more of like a diorama game now where you build scenes out of pieces such as characters and architectural pieces and then you can populate it with creatures and then um, like really use it as a uh, creative tool. So what I do is I design the pieces that go into the game that the players use to decorate. It seems like the favorite part for many people of Animal Crossing is buying their own home and decorating the interior. It sounds like your game focuses exclusively on that. Yeah, 
For a lot of players, this is kind of their creative outlet. I've heard from some players who have, for one reason or another, lost some of the the fine motor skills or dexterity needed to create their own art. So for them, the game is a place where they can be creative in a way that like is easier for them. So that's that's gratifying. And then it's always interesting when I design a piece and then put it it's put into the game to see what players do with that because their their creati- creativity takes the things that I make way further than I would have even thought. So that's pretty cool. I mean, from a functional perspective, the game is designed that your thing that you create can only be used in certain ways. What sort of creativity are you referring to? Well, for example, uh, if I create like a blue flower or something, then a player might buy a hundred of those blue flowers in the game and create a whole design out of them and use them, like shrink them down and use them like as a mosaic. Other things that players do are like create shrines. Like if they've lost uh, like a family member or a pet, then they'll create a whole scene that's like a shrine to that person filled with all the things that they liked. We see quite a bit of those. So it can be really touching seeing what kinds of things the players make and what's important to them. And who are your players? Who are these games aimed at? So our demographic definitely leans more towards women than men. And on Fish World in particular, uh, the demographic skews older. I know quite a few um, middle-aged women who play and also elderly women. We try to keep that in mind when we're creating content for our game uh, to create items that have general appeal, but that lean towards things that are evoke nostalgia, things that are pretty, uh, things we do a lot of like uh, fantasy things like fairies and mermaids, just things that like the players aren't really into gore or uh, like things that evoke violence very much. Uh, We try to keep things very light. There's been talk over the last several decades about what it means to make games that are aimed at one demographic over the other. You know, back in the mid to late 90s, when edutainment titles were trying to tap into the young women gamers market, they were making games about ponies and games that were pink or purple or et cetera. So what, what does it mean today on Facebook to make a game that's aimed at a certain demographic? Is it true in your experience that like... Gore appeals more or less to one gender or the other. Because it, what I work, the game that I work on is a live title. We can try things and we can get immediate feedback from the players to see what they think about it. In that way, we can cater our game towards what's working for the players and what they enjoy, and then lean away from the things that they don't enjoy. So, like we have tried, like um, content that was like for Halloween, for example, that's more gory or about violence slasher movies and like horror things and like we can see like how like what the players feel about that and whether they liked it or not i think that that makes a huge difference as far as trying to be authentic to the players that we have if we were totally off the mark and designing things that were just like everything is pink or everything is like kind of what i think that the players would want like i could be wrong so it's important to us to see what the players actually respond to and then try to uh, change course around that. What does it mean for a game to be live nowadays? Obviously, your game exists in the cloud, but nowadays, so many shipped retail games still continue to get patches and DLC over the network. So for a game that is exclusively online, what does it mean, for example, Crunch? Are you always making content or are there still specific deadlines you're trying to ship by our game is has daily content releases 
um, and quite a few. So we have constant deadlines, basically. Uh, we don't have a crunch cycle in the same way as a studio that releases new products does. Uh, so we, we don't have like a period of like intensity and then a period of rest or, you know, layoffs. Uh, what instead we have is continuous pressure. And what we found is that some people prefer the work to be cyclical because it gives you time to recover from those periods of crunch. Whereas with our game, the pressure is continuous and the deadlines are also continuous. It's critical for the artists that work at, at Big Viking Games to find an equilibrium because if you overwork yourself, you can quickly burn out because there's no relief. Uh, you need to find a balance where you can go to work, get all the work done, and then go home and then just live your own life. So I think that that's really important for working on a live title is just to be able to like work hard at work and then just go home and like I don't do any overtime and I, I barely do. I just work hard at work and go home and it helps me to like stay stay mentally healthy in this industry. So I think that that's really important. I'm glad you have found that work-life harmony because when you mentioned daily updates, that just sounds like absolutely exhausting. It can be for sure. And we also have a small team. The core art team working on our game, it's four people. What we, we have learned is how to be extremely efficient at our jobs and um, like really support each other. So like our team is like really close knit and uh, we'll cover for each other. We'll look out for each other. And it's a team of all women as well. So that's pretty cool. What sort of roles or positions do the other people play? You, ha you are the senior artist. What other titles would we find on that team? Uh, so there are two senior artists and two intermediates. We also have um, an art director and uh, a UI designer. Uh, we have a team of programmers, content and community, people who like prepare the content for release, people who uh, answer tickets from players and resolve any issues they have and communicate with the players. Um, we also have a team of a marketing team to make sure that we're hitting the right note with uh, the, the releases that we put out. Oh, and we have a QA team as well. I think I remembered everybody. We also have managers. <laughs> of course, you got to have some level of bureaucracy. Yes. What are the continuing art needs for a game? Because in many other games, I've never participated in game development myself, but I imagine at some point the art is locked and the QA occurs or the game mechanics occur or it's some sort of a staged process. But it sounds like you're always creating art for this. Are there just always new elements and features for characters to play with? Our game works around weekly themes. So every week we put out uh, a new like daily releases of content that's all geared towards a specific color palette and specific theme. So for example, one that we did recently was um, a medieval meadow theme where everything, it was like the scene was uh, like a, there's distant castles, there's like maypoles and like knights in shining armor, jousting, that kind of thing. So, and everything was like very like soft and light and warm colors. So we got to work with like the, create content with that specific theme and those specific colors for the week. And then the, the next week we're off to a completely different theme. And the, the goal for the player is to collect the pieces that they enjoy and then make a scene around that theme. That sounds like fun. What have been some of your favorite themes? Um, I like the kind of high fantasy themes uh, and aquatic themes. So tend to be the best for me. Sometimes like we, we get to uh, trade off who, who makes the colors for the theme, like who, who designs the kind of the look that we're going for. And I, I really like to do that kind of work. Um, I like to work with the very bright, rich colors. So I really enjoy 
um, like s- springy themes and that kind of thing. I don't enjoy as much the like the dark Halloween themes. I just like like working with like very bright, beautiful colors. Is there some sort of a gallery that Big Viking Games compiles on a weekly basis or so where they highlight some of their favorite user creations? Um, we have a Facebook group where players will post their creations, and we also have a, a contest feature in game where players can submit their work, and then uh, we'll reward the like the, the the players will vote on um, which one is best, and then that player will get a reward. So it's really cool to see what players do each week with the new stuff that we put out. That sounds like a great relationship you have with your community. I know with a lot of online games, players can get very invested in their games, and they have a relationship with the developers, especially when the game is kickstarted, for example, they feel certain sense of ownership. Yeah. That sometimes that can be sour, but it sounds like it's really sweet in your case. Yeah. Like, um, as with anything, like there's a mix, uh, players, there's never like, uh, a consensus among the players about what direction the game should go or whether the content is good or not. So I think you very quickly learn to take everything with a grain of salt and to kind of look at the overall picture instead of like any individual comments. But I think overall, like our, our players are great. And I just love, I love designing for this group of people who are like outside of what people might traditionally consider like a gamer. It's very gratifying. Yeah. That word can be very loaded. It has certain stereotypes associated with it. Not all of them positive or especially accurate. So it's nice to see you interacting with gamers who some people might not even consider gamers, but are nonetheless no less so than anybody else. That's right. We have gamers who are in their 90s and they, they participate in the game just as much as anybody else. That is fantastic. I wish I had gamers in their 90s in my family. I feel like most people I'm related to outgrew games after they went to college. And I don't understand why, because they're as much fun now as they were when we were kids. Yeah, and there's such a variety now. Like the game that we play, like I don't think... Hard the like the the hardcore gamer the stereotypical hardcore gamer wouldn't be interested in the kind of games that we make but we're serving like a completely different audience which is pretty cool yeah and hardcore can mean so many different things I bet you have players who are investing dozens of hours every week how is that not hardcore oh definitely <laughs> that's great I want to talk a little bit more about your role at Big Viking Games one of the things that I notice is important to you is mentorship. Can you tell me how that has manifested itself in your life and who you have found yourself mentoring? Have you had mentees in the past? I have, um, mostly outside the company. I'll have people reach out to me, young people um, who are looking for tips for their portfolios or want to try to get into games. So I, I try to pay it forward with things like that, offering them critique on their portfolios and tips on like how I find, found my way into this industry. I also try to pay it forward with things like going to schools and doing presentations about my work. Um, I really enjoy having that kind of opportunity because definitely when I was a teen, I had no idea that the, this kind of game, that this kind of job even existed and that you could work in games and like do cool stuff every day. I'm hoping that by letting a younger generation know that this, these kind of opportunities are out there, if you look, that maybe they can get started early earlier than I did anyway. So what was your own career path like? You said you didn't know about this when you were their age. What were you hoping to grow up to be? An artist. I had no idea what that meant, though. I just knew that <laughs> maybe one day I will do art. So You did it. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I managed. It took a little while, but I got there. So I was really lucky growing up to not 
to have uh, no parental pressure in one way or another. All I had was support to do whatever I wanted, um, which I know like can be pretty rare. So I, de I definitely like want to acknowledge that, that that helps a lot with my career path. I was also very lucky to have really good public arts education at the elementary and high school level that gave me a, a, an opportunity to grow my work quite a bit before I even got to college. Uh, I did go to York University uh, in fine arts, and then I was drawing comic books on my own time uh, from high school on, well, from, from elementary on, actually, because I figured that when I would grow up, I would become a comic book artist. That was kind of my dream. But when I graduated, my other dream was to go to Japan and to teach English. So I did that first. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was awesome. It was, it was absolutely amazing. But when I came home from Japan, because like I didn't want to, I don't want to be a teacher. I, I learned that after teaching in Japan that it was, I enjoyed it, but I didn't want to be a teacher as a, a career for the rest of my life. So I came home and it was right in the, at the start of the global recession. So basically I didn't have very many prospects. A lot of my friends were losing their jobs out of work. Uh, so what I did for a couple of years is I did um, drawing and painting classes, teaching adults part-time, and then I worked retail for a few years. And I got really into video games during that period because I kind of, I played them like with my brothers growing up, but then kind of fell out of it. And um, I really got back into it during that period where I had some more time. And at that point, I learned that there were a few game development studios in town and like I, my mind was blown. Like, I don't know where I thought that games were made, but definitely not in my hometown. <laughs> so I looked into it and learned that, Hey, there's, there's artist jobs at these studios and I could, I could be an artist. So I started trying to teach myself. I worked retail for two years while doing that, uh, working on my portfolio at night, trying to learn how to use different software because like I'd done a little bit of digital art, but I basically did mostly pen and ink drawings and oil paintings. So I really had no skills with the the work that I would need to do. So I prepared a portfolio and sent it off to like the two or three studios in town and got no response. But I didn't give up. I went to an event that a bunch of studios were at at the local college. And I brought my portfolio book with me and I just talked to as many of them as I could. That was the key to getting noticed was actually meeting people in real life. Like, I don't think I would have gotten in or a bit noticed if I hadn't have done that. So, and then I talked to some people from Big Viking Games. And then a couple of months later, I was hired. And it's now been five and a half years and I am a senior artist. Wow, that's amazing. And it's so great that you had the opportunity to meet with them because not everybody does have game studios in their backyard and they might not be able to afford to travel to Seattle, for example, on the off chance that they might meet somebody at a job fair. Yeah, like it was uh, definitely like a combination of like being privileged enough to like be, have the time to, to make my portfolio, having the education there, and then having being lucky enough to have studios in town that I could apply to, and then just uh, being brave enough to, to try. It, it's hard because pretty much anybody you talk to in the games industry has a different path to getting in. So it's hard to say like, oh, this is what you have to do to get into the games industry. But what I've found is the best advice is like, just be persistent and continuously work on your skills. So that's, and that's what I did. And it worked for me. 
And I would say that those skills that you need to develop would would include soft skills, being able to talk to somebody at a convention and being able to interact with people in an offline format. That may be something that is often overlooked, but it's apparently in your case essential. Oh, definitely. And I, I got to have some experience on the other side of the table after that, going to various events and helping to represent my company. And uh, like, I would always feel a little bit sad if, if people like wanted to come talk, but figured that they, you know, oh, I'll just apply later or something. Oh, I don't need to go talk to them. I'm like, no, like, if you want to get into the industry, you really do like have to be willing to do that work. So I don't know. I just, I just wish that people would, if, if you do have the opportunity to network, then to try to take, take that opportunity if you can, because it really does make a difference. It really does. I, uh, several of my last, actually my last three jobs all came from people who I already knew, whether it was through grad school or at a convention. Most people that I have on this podcast are people that I meet at PAX East or Boston Fig or other events. It really does pay to shake hands and get to know people. Yeah. And like, I'm a pretty shy person, so I, I know how scary it is, but like, it's so worth it if you put yourself out there. That's what I've found, at least. Like, I've never really regretted put a, putting myself out there, like the opportunities that I've had, just, just being on Twitter, even. Um, I've had so many opportunities that I never would have had if I'd try, kind of stayed in my shell and tried to protect myself that way. So, you know, Twitter can be a beast, but it can also be good. A previous guest of this show, Serenity Caldwell, said that every job she's ever had, she got by net, by networking on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That shows you right there. Did you ever ask anybody at Big Viking Games what happened to that portfolio you mailed in? Why it never got any acknowledgement? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I think also, like when I when I was first applying, I like maybe had some pieces that weren't as strong in my portfolio. Like, it's okay to apply somewhere more than once, and like, um, like. Just as an aside, like I applied to a couple of like zine projects this year. Uh, I applied to three and didn't get into the first two and got into the third. And I think may, like it's hard to know what the what was the factor that I didn't get in the first to the first two projects and got into the third. But I feel like part of it was that my portfolio, I was continuously working on pieces. And by the time I applied to the third one, my portfolio was that much stronger. So like... I look back on the portfolio that I had five years ago and it's nowhere near what I'm doing now. And that's because I worked at it. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't blame the, the company for not replying to me. <laughs> it's true. It, it, it pays off to be persistent and to work on your own portfolio. The first time I applied to grad school, I did not get in. So mm -hmm. I spent the next year writing portfolio pieces, putting them on my blog. I rewrote my cover letter, my application letter, my application essay, and put a whole new package together a year later and applied. This time I got in, and five, seven years later after I graduate, I'm now actually teaching at that college. I'm teaching at a college that didn't even want me in the first place. That's amazing. And that just goes to show that it's it's not, no, it's just not not yet in many cases. That's a great way to put it. I never thought of it that way. I like that. Yeah. And it's really cool, too, because uh, when you look back at pieces, like I'll look back at a piece that I made a year ago and I'm like, wow, like it's hard to see date on the day to day grind what your progress is. But when you when you look back a year, 
it's just amazing to see how far you've come. I try not to look too far back because I inevitably will just be embarrassed by whatever I did, say, five years ago. Oh, God, I know that. <laughs> I, w- I would like to ask how important it was for you to go to college for this, because you mentioned you've been doing this since grade school, elementary school. You apparently already had some latent, ta- t- some latent talent, which you obviously worked at. Mm-hmm. And I remember in my own grade school, there was a girl, Mary Beth, who was just drawing in every single class. And I thought to myself, that's amazing. I will probably never be able to do that because I don't know how. Can you be taught these things or do you need to already be doing it? Um, I think that there may be an element of talent in there at the start. And I, I try to think of talent like a seed. So you might have like a good hand-eye coordination or something that will help, but like talent is a seed that needs nurtured. And then people, people told me when I was a kid that I was talented. So I thought, oh, like I must be good at this. I'll keep doing it because I'm getting positive reinforcement. And I think that that positive reinforcement was more of a factor than any natural talent that I may have had. People said I was good. So I worked at it. And then um, it just became a cycle where I continuously drew all the time. And just putting in those hours over the course of years is what really makes the difference. So I I find it really um, inspiring when I see artists post, like, look at my piece from five years ago and look at my piece now. I just love seeing that stuff because it proves that art is a skill that you can learn. It's not just uh, some people have it and some people don't. Anybody can start and take take their art to a place that they never would have imagined. It's just the work that you put into it. So is that to say you don't need to go to school for it? Maybe like 10, 20 years ago, the answer might have been different. But there are so many resources online now that I don't think it's actually necessary to go to school. I don't think, like, I hate to say it, but I don't think that I actually learned a lot skill-wise at university besides the time that I was putting into the work that I was doing. And I did learn a lot of skills like how to critique and how to receive critique that was the main my main takeaway from university but as far as like hard drawing skills um and proficiency in in light and color um like i probably could have got that stuff online so i don't think like i hesitate to tell people that they need to go to like especially an expensive art school when um it's really just the like the structure that's helpful that will get you to to put the time in. But if you can do that for yourself on your own time, then like go for it. Absolutely. I have found that there are some places, some employers who don't care about your education. They care about what you can do. And they figure that out by looking at your accomplishments, your resume, not necessarily at the education aspect, but at the experience aspect. However, some a lot of the experiences I have were earned by working at places that do look at whether or not you have a degree. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really challenging to know exactly what is necessary for any given work environment or even a specific career path. Because to get to where I am now, which does not require a degree, I had to do things that required a degree. Definitely. Like I, I wouldn't have had the experiences that I have had in my life if I hadn't gone to university and I have I have no regrets doing it just getting to go to Japan, like that, the job that I took, I could only have got that if I had had a degree. So, and just like the 
the years of experience that you you put into polishing yourself before you enter the job market as well? Well, one of the many other experiences you had while going to college was you were the president of the Anime and Manga Association. Tell me about that. Yeah. So one of, well, I had a couple of things I wanted to get in a, out of university. The one thing was I wanted to do art, obviously, but I also wanted to learn Japanese, which I did uh, in college. And I also wanted to, like, I was super into anime. So I really wanted to be in an anime club and make anime friends. So I consider it kind of an accomplishment to to run the Anime and Manga Association for one year. That was, it was fun, I, like getting to work with other people to pick the lineup of what shows we were going to be showing and then introduce people to um, like some anime that are off the beaten path. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was, it was great. I made some great friends in that experience. What are some of your favorite animes? Um, I love... I'll always love Sailor Moon. That was uh, my gateway yes. anime. <laughs> um, I love uh, Revolutionary Girl Utena, um, Rose of Versailles, um, Evangelion. I'm just really into 90s anime. I feel like that's like I'm old school. I feel like that was the peak of anime. So I, I watch a lot of modern titles, but I really I like the the creativity and the the hand-drawn aspect of old anime. So didn't I see that there was a one night only special event this month in theaters where they were showing like a newly dubbed or sub Sailor Moon movie? Yeah, it was Sailor Moon Super S. I didn't make it to those, but I did make it to um, uh, Sailor Moon R when that was released a few years ago. And actually, um, the film broke while we were there. It was one night only. And the film broke. So we didn't even get to finish it. What is it you like about magical girl anime? Um, I think like growing up, like I had two brothers, so we would end up watching a lot of things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I did love, but like there's, there's like only a few female characters on that show to really, for me to really identify with. So having a show like Sailor Moon, that was a team of like five girls who were friends and they're all different, but they're all friends and they support each other was just, it was mind blowing. Honestly, I had never seen anything like that before. It was, I, th I think for a lot of people kind of of my generation, that that show was really empowering to us and that there's a reason why it sticks like so many years later. Huh. I never thought of it that way because I grew up watching Sailor Moon and Ninja Turtles. And I obviously the Ninja Turtles are four young boys, but I never thought of them that way. I, for, I thought of them as four young turtles, but you're right. Mm -hmm. They're brothers. They're not sisters and that there really aren't beyond like Irma and April who are mm -hmm. not starring characters. There's not a lot of female presence in that show. Yeah. And like April was always the one that I gravitated towards. I still love that character, but like, imagine if, if there, if the turtles, like this is going to sound like some people will, will consider this uh, sacrilege, but imagine if there, there had been like two boy turtles and two girl turtles and they were like brothers and sisters, like how cool would that have been? Uh, I, I would have loved that. I, my mind is blown right now just thinking about all the possibilities. That'd be fantastic. If there was a girl turtle later on. Uh, I think her color was like light purple or something, but I'd stopped watching that by that point. So don't quote me on that. Uh, there have been so many iterations of the turtles. I've lost track beyond just the one show in the early 90s that I used to watch. So I did not know that there was a lady turtle. Yeah. And though I think there's a new there's a new show just coming out too. I don't keep up with it as much as uh I did when I was a kid, but 
I love that there's been a, like a new turtles for each generation. I wish that there was a new Sailor Moon for each generation. That's that's not fair. Have there not been new Sailor Moons? There uh, is or was a reboot uh, a couple years ago, I think, for the 20th anniversary uh, Sailor Moon Crystal. But that's the first time that we've got new Sailor Moon anime since the 90s. Huh. And uh, to mixed results, I'm I'm not a fan of it. But it would be okay if it wasn't very good if there was a new Sailor Moon every few years. Well, I mean, they're they're rebooting a lot of shows nowadays. They're doing Voltron and She-Ra. So who knows if Sailor Moon won't be next? That's right. Maybe they'll reboot it again. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> they'll reboot the reboot. Yeah. Well, especially if the last one wasn't all that successful, that it gives them nowhere to go but up. That's right. And it's really interesting seeing like new creative teams with the new perspectives, like especially with something like Shira, Voltron as well. Like the creative teams are really like putting themselves into these new shows, and it's just really exciting to see. I'm so excited that like toys and cartoons are starting to break down this very rigid gender binary that I had when I was a kid growing up with toys and that. Um, like I love seeing like little boys playing with dolls, like little girls playing with action figures. Like it's all good. I just, I think it's really silly to divide it like that because like everybody likes toys. No, I absolutely agree. And I think to a degree, it's an older generation that has instituted those stereotypes. You know, I see the grandparents in my family saying to their granddaughters, for example, oh, you, you want girly toys, don't you? Here, play with this. Mm-hmm. Whereas those little girls, their parents are saying, actually, grandma, she likes all kinds of toys. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, so, so I think it's something that we're slowly shedding as each generation grows up. Yeah. And also like little girls and little boys getting role models that they can really stand behind. I would like to see like more like racial diversity among like leads in cartoons, but I think that that's probably slowly shifting as well. Yeah, we're starting to see a lot more representation on the big and little screens from the movie Black Panther to the TV show Star Trek Discovery. We're finally starting to see people who don't look like straight white cis men. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I I love it. Like, give me all of those shows. I'll take them all. (laughs) Now, you were talking about the audience for the games that you make at Big Viking Games. Is there... Are there avatars in your game that you present to your audience? Is there representation happening in the game as you create it? Yes. Uh, so, uh, with the Fish World, <clears throat> excuse me, we we create with Fish World, we create a scene, and you can fill it with any kind of characters that we create. Um, so we, I do like a lot of like fantasy creatures, um, like mermaids, fairies, uh, but also just regular folks. So. We try really hard to cover like different like ages, different like races. We've also covered some LGBT content within our games. If it if the 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 content requirement says like a couple like F, or like a a fairy couple at a fairy wedding, that's like why why couldn't they be two women? So so we've we've made that piece and we put it in the game. So it's been interesting to see like there's definitely um. A lot of people who really appreciate this content in the game and most most players are very accepting of it and love it. It's always a couple of players that just are not okay with that. But, you know, you you have to push the dial towards more diversity. And like, this is something that that I can do. And I think as a team, we can do like we have the power to 
to move the dial and put more diverse representation of people in our game. So um, that's something that we've definitely worked on over time and we continue to work on. One thing that we um, definitely could be better on and we're trying to improve on is body diversity in the game. Like, why couldn't you have a fat mermaid? Like, that would be awesome. So like, or like a, a very skinny mermaid. So it doesn't all have to be like an aerial body type. So we're, we're definitely trying to get more body diversity into our game as well. It's great that that is a decision that's been made at the corporate level, that you are aware that some people are not going to like this, and you do it anyway, not only because there will be people who like it, but also because it's the right thing to do. Hell yeah. Like, that's... It, ultimately, it's the right thing to do, and, like, we're, we're going to put, like, a gay black couple in our game, and we did, and some players didn't like it, but, like, we don't care because it's it's the right thing to do. Like, if any... If any players see that and go like, oh, isn't that nice? Then like we've we've done our jobs. So that's something that's really important to me as well. And to the other women that I work with, we're we're always trying to think of ways to uh improve in that regard. And it's important to feel like you work somewhere that reinforces your values and shares your values and gives you an opportunity to express them. I'm glad that Big Viking Games is such a place for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Like I love making things uh, for like mostly for women. And I love like having the freedom to, if I want, like, like I can show, I don't have to do just like stick to a very narrow uh, description of humanity. Like, and I can do many different representations if I want to. And you do that through your art at Big Viking Games. You do a lot of art in your day job, but you also do art at home. You're doing art pretty much 24 hours a day or at least whichever hours you're awake. How are they different? How is the art you do at work different from what you do at home and vice versa? So the art that I do at work is vector art, which is uh, done in Adobe Illustrator. And you do it by manipulating um, anchor points, uh, which is like you connect, if you connect four points, you have like a, a polygon and then you can do like circles and that and you can stretch out shapes. The reason that we do vector art is because it's infinitely scalable because uh, it's drawn programmatically by the computer. It's not like a, a like a raster image where um, if you blow up a raster image, it's going to get fuzzy eventually at some point. Whereas with vector art, you can blow it up the size of a building and it will still be like the same quality. It's really fun, um, like working with vectors because I can create a piece and then just very easily just like swap out colors, um, like put different gradients on, but it's not really painterly. It's more about like manipulating fine details and like moving nodes around. So that's what I do at my day job. So what I do at home is a lot more painterly. Like I'll get into Photoshop and I'll just like turn on some oil brushes and then just push paint around. And that's like the really like more tactile qualities that I love. And I try to do in my own work because I, I can't get that at work. So I enjoy both. Um, I don't do too much painterly stuff at work and I don't do any vector art at home. I keep them separate and that kind of helps me not get burnt out on one or the other. When you mentioned doing vector graphics because they're infinitely scalable, is that because your games are online and therefore you don't know the size or dimensions of the display on which they'll be played? Uh, it has more to do with the the technology. So the game is run on Flash. Like all of our things that we create get uh, put into Flash. We apply animations, other effects to things, and then we 
export um, like a, a flash file that is put into the game. So, uh, but it also helps with if players want to take a piece that I've made in the game, they can um, enlarge it freely and enlarge it to any size they want and they won't see any like degradation of quality. So um, yeah, it's partly the, the technology that we use and it's partly like the functionality within the game itself. I'm surprised to hear you mention Flash because I thought that was a technology that was sort of on the way out. It is. Flash is definitely on its way out. There are um, some things like Facebook Game Room is like an external service that you can play Flash games on to preserve those. Um, but there's definitely like some games, Flash games that in the future will probably, I'm just speaking in general, not about the games at Big Viking Games that like they may be shut down at some point in the future if, if the Flash technology no longer functions at some point, which is a shame because like that's a whole genre of game that's that would be basically lost to us forever. But there's definitely like systems in place um, to extend the life of Flash games so that you can keep playing them. But anything that's not being like worked on, like I worry that we're going to lose like any of these early Flash um, like games and cartoons and that will be just lost to time. So I don't know what the answer is to that. There's a lot of like preservation issues within games uh, where things things that aren't specifically saved are just lost as the technology changes, which is a real shame. It's so different from things like movies or books where like the technology might change, but the, the actual content can be preserved easily. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that in the context of Flash games. I do think about game preservation, whether it's the availability of arcade ROMs and being able to recreate that experience on a home console, or whether it's when online marketplaces go away, like the Wii Shop that just shut down earlier this year, and all those games are now just gone forever. Yeah. But I hadn't really thought about it as Flash, because Flash, especially if you use Apple mobile devices, Flash is often portrayed as sort of like the bad guy, as buggy software that we want to get rid of. But I hadn't really thought about the fact that it has been used to create all these things that if Flash goes away, so do the Flash creations. That's right. So, and like, I get it. Like Flash, like technologies die and that's, that's, it is what it is. And it's important that as Flash shuts down, like, um, that the, the, that people's computers are basically protected, that, uh, they don't get malware viruses and those kinds of things. Like as, uh, browsers stop supporting Flash, they'll, they're also going to stop, um, like supporting like protecting people's computers, you know? So I'm not the most technically skilled. I'm sure my programmer friends could describe it a lot better than I could, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. And hopefully people are screen capping the flash games that they love. Uh, Cause I don't know what will happen to them all in the future. Yeah. Not only screen capturing, but also doing let's plays so that they can share their own personal experiences and capture some of what it's like to actually play the game. Yeah. I guess I guess we'll just see what happens in the future. But if if history is any indication, I don't I don't know how much will be saved. It seems like our the cycles that the industry goes on. Um, there's not really like there there are dedicated people working on preserving, but it's not something that's generally considered by game development companies. Like while they're working on their project, like how how are we going to preserve this in the future is not something that's really thought of. Whereas for artists, like 
one thing that you learn is like, do your drawing on acid-free paper because acid-free paper will stand the test of time, rag paper, as opposed to like acidic, like loose leaf or something like your drawing won't last 50 years if you draw it on poor quality paper. So you have to think of the long term, think of preserving it. I would hope that game developers are thinking more about preservation, especially since now there's so much profit to be made from porting games or re-releasing games, whether it's to a new console or on a virtual console or something like that. But even that is something we see more often with larger studios like Capcom, for example. A small studio like Big Viking Games, if, God forbid, something were to happen to your studio, where would that source code be? It's still localized within one company. That's right. And something like like Skyrim can be on any... um any service because they're they're pu- actively putting development resources into doing into porting and porting is not an easy job by any means there's a lot of like technical details that like you need a really talented team to do a port so yeah it's just a it's a tricky problem and i don't really have a solution to that well i'm depressed <laughs> <laughs> don't be <laughs> play games while you can um, show developers love and uh, yeah what a great motto play games while you can <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start tweeting that thank you <laughs> Go for it. speaking of remaining optimistic so you are creating art at work you said you create art at home as well do you ever get burnt out between the two of just doing this I mean broadly you talked about how they're different but broadly the same art form just 16 hours a day big time yeah, I uh, I have had a bit of a journey with burnout. Um, so near the end of 2016, I would was really starting to feel like I'd plateaued with the things that I was doing at work. And I wasn't really doing things on my own. Like I was from time to time, but I wasn't really dedicated at doing personal art at home. So 2017 for me was a year of just like feverishly working, like trying to work as fast as I could, work as hard as I could, just get better and just make a lot of pieces. And that was, it was really gratifying. And I feel like 2017 was like my year as far as making art. I've, I just, I look back at early 2017 compared to early 2018 and I just can't even believe like how far I've come. But then I also burnt out, um, near the end of, of 2017. I, uh, I took on too many things and I was putting too much time in and I was just like starting to break down. I was like losing my optimism. Like I really needed to take a step back. So uh, starting in January and February, especially, um, like I suffered uh, a personal loss and was in grief as well. So it was a turning point for me to really think like, okay, Angela, like I know you want to, you want to make art and you want to like be better, but you need to take care of yourself. So I've been on a journey since February to try to be balanced and try not to like, hammer out of my head the part of me that's thinking like if you're if you're not making art you're not getting better you know like no I need to take a break I need to have a night where I just play games and that's I do nothing else and if if I need that I should do it but just know that I'm not going to give up entirely and I like when I have the energy I'll get back to working on what I want to work on but I've definitely like learned my I feel like I've learned my lesson with uh with burnout where I need to like listen to what my body is saying and like where my heart is and take the time that I need. Well, I'm very sorry for your loss, but these things tend to have a way of 
forcing us to reprioritize our lives. And it sounds like you've taken advantage of that. I have, yeah. I've def- it's, on the one hand, it's made me aware of like how short life is and the importance of doing what you really want to do with your life, with the time that you have. But on the other hand, to, that you have to stop and enjoy the journey and you have to refuel and you have to keep your body and your mind in a good spot in order to make work. And so like I've, I've really tried to advocate for that now. If I see a friend online saying, oh, I just, I just have a little bit further. I'm just going to like, I'll just grind it out all night. I'll just work all night on this piece. I'm not, I don't need to sleep. I'll be like, no, you, 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 sh- you should rest if you can. And like a, a, you'll feel better if you rest and take care of your body and approach it in the morning. I've also started wearing um, a brace on my wrist uh, to sleep. And I've noticed that that's made a difference too, because I do like work with my hands all day long, eight hours, and then come home and do a couple more. So like I, I'm look, I look at other artists who drive themselves into the ground and end up with like tendon issues and carpal tunnel. And just, I just need to, to take care of myself better. So I've, I've definitely been trying to do that. And I recommend anybody else who's in a similar space, like try, like try to find a, like a brace that works for you and like do stretches and just take breaks. We live in an age where we're often encouraged to engage in self-care, but sometimes self-care is misconstrued to mean, oh, go get a manicure or go buy yourself some new shoes or whatever. And sure, I've done those things as well and they're nice, but they don't have a long lasting impact. They don't make changes in your lifestyle that are beneficial. And the kinds of things that you're talking about, those are sustainable and will make a difference when it comes to real self-care. Yeah. Like for me, maybe self-care is work on my piece and, and work hard and get it done. And sometimes it's set the piece aside and come back to it tomorrow. So, and being aware of myself enough to know which one of those is, is right for me. Yeah, and making sure that your creative outlet is something that, yes, you are working harder to be better at it and you are investing energy in it, but you're getting rewarded from it too. You don't want to necessarily invest more than you're getting out of it because otherwise it's just a drain. Absolutely. And that's why I do mostly fan art on my own because I'm also drawing things that I love and um, getting the external validation from people who enjoy my work is also a big motivator. Yeah, just putting my efforts where I'm going to get the most benefit for myself uh, by like trying a new technique or learning something, but also drawing things that I specifically am really passionate about is the only way that I, I keep doing it. Um, if I was just doing like like architectural studies or something that's like really outside of my interest and to and grinding at that to get better, then I don't think I would have stuck through with it. Like I'm going to draw like uh, anime girls and um, like that kind of thing because that's that's what I enjoy. And like I try with each piece to try to tackle a new skill. Like the piece I'm working on right now is to try to get better at lighting from behind. And so that's something that I'm working on in the piece, but I'm still drawing like I'm drawing Diva from Overwatch right now and really enjoying that. And uh, uh, so I'm learning, but I'm also drawing something that I enjoy. So it, it helps the work go by better. So speaking of working at something and getting better at it, I want to bring this full circle. You mentioned that you originally thought you might want to draw comics for a living, and there is a comic section of your website, but it hasn't been updated in a while. Do you think you'll ever return to that medium? You know, I don't know. When I originally was making comics, I was doing it in kind of the anime boom of like the the, the 2000s. Um, 
and I was consuming a lot of manga and there wasn't at that period, there was a lot of manga coming in and there was the, like the typical, uh, like American superhero comics and American indie comics, but there really wasn't like on the online comics the way that there is now. So I, I quit because I didn't really see a future for myself in that work. Like I couldn't see myself ever getting a job at one of the big studios and there's no way I was going to be able to like live in Japan and make manga, like being from outside that culture. So I, I just didn't see an avenue for it. And that's why I ultimately stopped. But these days, like there's all kinds of services. There's a, a lot of people. I know a lot of friends online who have their own comic and um, they're doing it in a sustainable day, in a, sorry, a sustainable way, um, putting out one page per week. So, or even, even less than that. And it's really cool to see like, like, I think that if, if I was at the age that I was when I was doing comics, like I, I may have stuck with it now that there's an ecosystem built around that in um, like North American culture where anybody can make a comic and put it online. So what I was doing at the time was drawing everything by hand, uh, taking it to a print shop and getting my own books made and trying to sell them at conventions. But it's really hard to get that kind of exposure for your work when you you only really have your local uh, environment. So like there was the internet, obviously, but like there wasn't a, that kind of ecosystem with all of these sites that uh, people post their comics to. So um, maybe I'll return to it one day. I really did enjoy the storytelling aspect of comics, but for now it's more of the fantasy painting that I'm really enjoying. Well, whether it's in comics on Twitter or in Big Viking Games, it sounds like regardless, you do have some stories to tell. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what the next chapter will be. Thank you. And for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Remind our listeners where we can find you online. Uh, you can find me at Philmina Games on Twitter and at Philmina on Instagram. And what about Big Viking Games? Uh, BigVikingGames.com. <laughs> Easy enough. There will be links to all those in the show notes found at polygamer.net. Angela, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.